And since we have some, uh, some younger people who weren't here last Sunday, maybe some of you kids who were here last Sunday can, can help me out in bringing us and them up to speed. Uh, do you remember what last week's sermon was about? Any of you young people? What was last Sunday's sermon text about? Can you think back that far? <laughs> Maybe your parent could uh, help you spot that. Yes, five loaves and two fish, and those fed how many people? 5,000 men, not counting the women and children. Who did that? Jesus did it. Yes, you are exactly right. Uh, presumably, you're, you're not going to have bread and dried fish for, for lunch today, are you? <laughs> well, that's what those folks had, and probably it tasted pretty good at the end of the day when they were, they were hungry. People didn't have as much food as, as we do today, so I'm sure they enjoyed that. How much food was left over? Excellent. Twelve baskets full of food left over. And we saw that that twelve might well sort of be an echo to us, a, a, uh, a sort of a hint back to the Old Testament and the fact that there are twelve tribes in the people of Israel. So, what do you think Jesus was teaching his disciples in that? I invite any older people do respond to that. If you, what did you learn from what Jesus did in that, in that scripture passage? Did you take anything back with you? What did you learn about Jesus? What did you learn about yourself? Any lessons you took away from that? Jesus sustains. I like that. Sustains. That gives that, that feeling of holding up. Who does he sustain? His followers. A little bit of a trick question because we're told that Christ sustains all of creation, aren't we? This, this universe would not continue to exist for one second without the sustaining word of God. But certainly he sustains his people in a very uh, special way. And we, we noticed as well in that, in that passage from last Sunday that, that God had taught Israel a lesson by feeding them in the wilderness. And in fact, I think we, we noticed that Jesus went back to that lesson when he was tempted in the wilderness by the devil to, to make food for himself. What was the lesson that God was teaching his people and that Jesus then quoted when Satan tempted him to look out for his own needs first? Anybody remember? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And that is a supreme lesson, isn't it? Well, well, we're turning again to God's word today. 
Are you ready to feast on God's word? Okay. Are you ready to get a food, a, a nourishment, a sustaining that you can get from no physical source? That's what we're about today as we turn to God's word in Matthew chapter 14. Picking up right after that incident of the feeding of the 5,000 that Matthew recorded, we're going to begin with our text in verse 22 of Matthew 14, and I'll read down through verse 33. Let's hear today then God's word for us. Immediately. He made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart! It is I. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. Beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Immediately, how many times did we read that word in this text? Perhaps Matthew is using that little word immediately. He doesn't actually use it very often. Mark uses it all over the place in his gospel. His is a very fast-paced gospel. He's always saying immediately this and then immediately that. Matthew doesn't use it uh, very much at all. But he's using it three times in this passage, and I think it's worth, worth noting that. Uh, I, I think that at least one of the things that that can help us to do is to make, put our focus right on Jesus here. Immediately, Jesus did this. Immediately, Jesus said that. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand. The, the emphasis, this is about Jesus. This passage is about Jesus, and we're reminded that of, of that even by this little adverb. Well, he's also emphasizing in the beginning of this text, don't you think, the authority and command of Jesus. 
Do you notice the wording of that, of that first verse there, verse 22 that we read? Immediately he made the disciples. That, that, that's actually a very strong word. Uh, I think the, the King James uses the word constrained there, which uh, I like. It gives a little more power to the verb than just, just made. Uh, he, he commands them. He orders them. Okay, he, he is, as you remember, we, we noted well, last week, we noted over and over again, Jesus is always in control. And he's exercising his authority in a very powerful way. All he's got to do is say the word, and things happen. So he orders his disciples to get into the boat, go on ahead of him. We're not told what they thought about that. Uh, they said, why? Why aren't you coming with us? Uh, we don't know any of that. Uh, Jesus is in charge, and he sends them out. They obey his orders. Well, so does the crowd. These thousands of people, he is able to send away as well. Again, there is an authority about his word. If you're a follower of Christ, you need to grab hold of that idea with both hands. Jesus is your authority. It's your authority. You better be listening to him and obeying him. He has authority. Disciples have seen him claim authority even that belongs to God. You remember perhaps back in chapter 9, that episode where, uh, where Jesus uh, says to a man who's paralyzed, he's brought to him. You remember what he says to show his authority? He says, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> We're expecting that just to be about a healing, but it's, it's about forgiveness. And, of course, that raises the hackles of the religious elite of that day. Who is this that can, can forgive sins? And, of course, the, the message is clear. Well, this is God in the flesh. And so he, he actually says to them, that you may know that the Son of Man, that's his self-identification, has authority on earth to forgive sins. I've got the authority to forgive sins, he's saying there. And to prove it, he speaks to the paralyzed man, get up and walk. He proves his authority. Now, most recently, of course, they've seen his authority in that miracle that we just, just reviewed. They've seen Jesus' authority over physical creation. Okay, he, he, is, he is able to produce food. He, he does, in a miraculous way, in a supernatural way, he does what God is doing right now. He produces food from creation for people. And Jesus, in a sense, just, just speeds up that process. To feed thousands of people. He has authority. He has authority. Disciples haven't quite learned that, have they? But Jesus is teaching them, and they're learning. Well, he exercises authority, he dismisses the crowds. So why? 
Well, we were told back in verse 13, if you want to let your eyes go back to that verse in chapter 14, back in verse 13, we're told that Jesus intended to withdraw and go off by himself. And he's still intent on doing that. Now, in the meantime, the crowds have shown up, and he's ministered to those people. He's delayed his plan to minister to human need, healing them, feeding them, teaching them. But, but he is going to do what he planned to do, and that is have time alone for meditation and prayer. This is a priority for him. It's a priority to him to have time for meditation and prayer. It characterizes his ministry. We, there, there's a lot of references to this in the, in the Gospels in Mark chapter 1 as beginning of Jesus' ministry is described, and, and he's first coming on the scene, and crowds are starting to show up. You remember the disciples are all excited about all the attention and everything, and they get up in the morning the next day, and they can't find Jesus. And they finally find him outside of town in a deserted area. He'd gotten up before dawn while it was still dark and gone out there to meditate and pray Luke chapter 5, verse 16, tells us he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. In, in Luke chapter 6, we're told that he, he prayed on, on special occasions. So he goes up in a mountain and he prays all night before he chooses the 12 who will be designated as apostles. Uh, now we're we're not given his thinking and praying on this occasion. We're not told what he, he prays. Uh, most of the time, we're not in the Gospels, with the notable exception of, of his prayers the, the night of his betrayal and arrest. We, we did notice that uh, Matthew has put that desire to pray back in verse 13. He's linked to that with the news about John the Baptist's uh, death. Uh, about his illegal execution at the hands of a, an idolatrous king. And, and we thought at that point that it could be reasonable to think that at least part of the reason why Jesus wants to withdraw is to grieve the death of, of his relative and, and, and friend, someone he loved and admired very much. Uh, we, we also reflected that perhaps he is he is wanting to withdraw to meditate and pray because he knows that, that that illegal death of John the Baptist foreshadows his own death that will come in probably just about a year. And, and, and already we've seen in Matthew that this, this story comes right, this chapter comes right, it's sort of a a turning point in Jesus' ministry where more and more there's going to be opposition to him from the religious elite. And there's going to be misunderstanding from the disciples. And there's going to be, well, all kinds of ups and downs in terms of the crowds and what they're thinking and what they're wanting from him. And, and so perhaps part of the reason he wants this time to meditate and pray is is to fix firmly in his mind exactly what his course of action is going to be, which is not going to satisfy any of these groups. 
But, but maybe he just likes to pray. Maybe, maybe the Son of God just enjoys, delights in, loves, time for communion with the Father and with the Spirit. Perhaps, perhaps it's just the habit of his life from when he was very young to sing and pray the Psalms, the worship book of God's people that he would have learned as a child. He just enjoys time worshiping God. Thinking about God's word, praying, singing God's word back to him. This this is not the main point of the message, but you know, if your own if your own meditation and prayer doesn't seem to get off the ground, if you, if you if you're frustrated with that, if you if you feel like it really doesn't mean much, you know, I'd encourage you to go to the Psalms. Uh, you, you would find in the Psalms, as Jesus I know did, uh, all the emotions that you feel, the, the thoughts that you have about God. You, you'll you, you'll read cries of suffering. Uh, you'll read questions why. You'll read praise and thanksgiving. Uh, so I encourage you, go to the Psalms and, and meditate on them and, and pray them. Let them inform your own prayers. Well, Jesus uh, spends quite a lot of time in that meditation and prayer, doesn't he? Hours, several hours, almost the whole night. Long time, and you figure that you know there's no uh, there's no artificial lighting, so he he's undoubtedly been praying from from the time of the sunset through the night. Uh, we we're, we know that this. This is the case because he doesn't come to the disciples until the fourth watch of the night and measured in Roman terms, which that seems to be. Uh, that's, the, that's the last watch of the night that is roughly from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So he's prayed, meditated on God's word all night. And I have to think he is... He is energized by that. He draws strength from that. And so, in the meantime, we're told, the disciples have not been energized and strengthened, and if anything, they've been worn out, right? They have been worn out. They tried to uh, be obedient to Jesus' uh, command and get across this lake, which is really not that big, but it has proven a very frustrating experience because they've been steering into a headwind. Sails would have been useless, of course, uh, so they're probably rowing, taking turns and shifts rowing, and they're making very little headway. They're, uh, 
only half to, well, maybe more than half, halfway across, but still it's, it's night. They probably don't even know even exactly where they are. I think we can expect that they're, they're exhausted and uh, maybe a little bit worried as well. Uh, some of them are seasoned fishermen, but uh, still, uh, they know this lake can be treacherous. We read back in chapter 8 of Matthew of such a scene, didn't we? When they were crossing the, the sea, that time with Jesus with them, and he's exhausted from his work, uh, and he's totally restful, confident of his father's providential will, so... He's sleeping through a bad storm. He's not worried. He's, in, he's trusting in the care of his heavenly father, and, and the disciples are not. <laughs> and you remember they finally come and wake him up and say, don't you care who are about to drown here? And you remember what he said to them, perhaps. Why are you afraid? Seems like sort of an obvious question in the circumstances. Almost tempted to wonder if some of the disciples are thinking, what do you mean, why are we afraid? <laughs> to see this storm? But of course, he points to the main issue, and it's going to be one of the issues in this text. He says, oh, you little faiths. He calls them by the name little faiths. <laughs> you little faiths. Why are you afraid? And of course, he, he stills the sea on that occasion. Probably, I, I'm going to guess some of them in, in this experience that we've just read about in this text, I think some of them are wishing that Jesus is with them. <laughs> They're probably saying, oh, I wish he had not sent us by ourselves. I wish he was here so we could wake him up and ask him for help. Well, he shows up. Look again at the, way, at the way Matthew records this. Verse 25. In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. I mean, it's almost matter of fact, isn't it? Matthew doesn't say, and lo and behold, Jesus walked on the water out to the boat, all this distance. It's, it's really an understatement, isn't it? He's really, you know, almost in a sense downplaying it, we could say. It's just like, well, he's walking to rejoin his disciples, and it just happens he's walking on the water. It's interesting that that when you read the miracles of Jesus in Scripture, they're never a big show. Jesus is not a magician putting on a performance. He, he's not a celebrity who's playing to the crowds. He's not a TV personality, a sports figure who's trying to build an audience for himself. It's never about the miracles, per se. The miracles, we know, 
are simply there to point to us to who he is. He's revealing himself to his disciples in this miracle. He isn't just grandstanding here, in other words. Even as he wasn't grandstanding when he fed all those thousands of people. Remember we said well, he didn't really have to feed them. They weren't starving to death. But a loving God feeds his people. And so Jesus feeds the crowds. And so he's, he's doing this. He's walking on the water to his disciples. He sent them out there without himself. Remember that, right? Perhaps he's planned this all out ahead of time. They're ready for this lesson. So I'm going to give them this sign. So we're not told anything about how I did it or what it looked like or anything like that. We're just given the fact that he did it. Now what... What are we to learn from that? What were the disciples supposed to learn from that? Obviously, they, they were sort of behind the, behind the times here. They're, they're not really up to speed yet. <laughs> because their first response is, is not the response of Wisdom and knowledge and faith. <laughs> They're terrified. Must be a ghost. <laughs> we don't have any other category to put this in. <laughs> People don't walk on water. So it must be a phantasm. It must be a ghost. It must be... Maybe they're even afraid. Maybe this is a demon or something. You know, maybe this is some kind of spiritual being. <laughs> they weren't ready <laughs> for Jesus, were they? They were not ready to see him doing this. And so, there's our word immediately again. In verse 27, immediately Jesus spoke to them. He does not leave them in the doubt, in, dar in the dark. Okay, they, they uh, are totally confused in what they're thinking. Uh, we're not, by the way, parenthetically, to take what they say as in any way an indication that there's such a thing as ghosts. There is not. Scripture clearly teaches that when people die, they are not allowed to walk this earth in spirit form. So don't take what they say in their mistakenness and think that they're right. They're not right, and so he's got to correct them. So look at what he says in verse 27. Look, look carefully at this. Take heart. Take courage. That's what that means. Be brave. It is I. Do not be afraid. Don't be frightened. Notice those are imperatives. Okay, he doesn't even say, you don't have to be afraid, it's me. He says, don't be afraid. Take courage. Jesus does not want his followers to be a bunch of cowards. 
He wants them to think rightly so that they can be courageous. And so he gives them the grounds for their courage as well. He is a, this isn't just a, a, a whistling in the dark. He, Christian courage is not denying reality. Okay? It's not wishing. It's not trying to imagine or visualize or whatever other terms you might want to use. Christian courage, the courage of the followers of Christ, is based on fact, on reality. The storm is real. The wind is real. But there's a reality that trumps that reality. And it's right there in between the two commands. You see it? It's me. It is I. Take courage. Don't be afraid because I'm here. Storm is still going on. The wind's still blowing. But they have grounds now not to be afraid and instead to be brave because Jesus is there with them. That's the kind of courage that Jesus' followers are called to have. It's not like the, the so-called courage of the world that says, well, don't worry, it's all going to work out in the end. Or, well, better things are coming. Or, or, or any of the other silly kind of slogans out there that the world gives when they don't know what else to say. Christian courage says we have a Lord who is with us. And yes, the storm is real. And in fact, maybe the storm is going to drown me. Maybe I'm going to lose my life. Maybe he's purposed for me to face trials. But he's with me. Disciples haven't learned that yet, but they will. Peter will go to his death courageously because Jesus is with him. John will endure exile on a penal colony on an island in the Mediterranean, knowing that the Lord is with him. James will be stoned to death, but he'll know the courage of having the Lord with him. Take courage. Don't be afraid. And, and there's even in, in the language that Matthew uses here a, 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 an interesting pointer because, because when Jesus says the words that we translate, it is I, he's actually using a Greek expression which would literally be translated, I am. Now, it wouldn't really make sense for us as English readers to, to read, take heart, I am, do not be afraid. And so it's been rephrased, it is I, and that's a legitimate translation. That would be the way that you would identify yourself uh, using these, this term. 
But it's interesting to note that that, that particular expression, I am, in the Greek, is associated with their translation of the Old Testament, where God reveals himself to his people as Yahweh, the God whose name is I am. The God who in that name is revealing himself to his people as the one who is outside of time and space, who is beyond time and space, who controls time and space, the one who is eternal. He says to his people, I am. That's what you are to call me. And of course, we know from the scriptures that Jesus is the fullest revelation of the one who is the I am. The I am. And so as, as God's presence with his people gave them courage in the Old Testament, Jesus' presence gives his disciples courage. That's a constant theme in, in scripture. If, if you're... When you're feeling afraid or troubled, you know, there's so many passages to go to. Isaiah chapter 41, for instance. Isaiah 41, verses 8 through 10. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. That's, that's the name for God's people, okay? So this is a word for all of those who are God's people, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have not chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Later on in Isaiah chapter 43, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. And great if the disciples had remembered that verse and been saying it, right? But Jesus is with them now. And evidently, his self-identification to the disciples has a transforming effect. It just, it changes everything. And indeed, if you, if you know Jesus is with you, that changes everything. And it changes everything for these disciples. And we see that reflected in, in what Peter does here. Peter is sort of the, he's the talkative one. You know, he's that kid in class that's always got his hand up first, you know. Uh, he, he, he's the one that always does something and you think, I wish I'd done that first. <laughs> so Peter is really probably reflecting all of the disciples at this point. They know this is Jesus. Now suddenly the whole scene has changed. This is incredible. And I imagine, I have to guess that if Peter had been successful, You'd have had all of the guys out of the boat by that time, and they would have just walked ashore together. Uh, but Peter then uh, says, if it, Lord, if it's you, and, and I don't think we should take that in a doubting sense. We, we might translate that, since it's you, 
Now that I know it's you, command me to come on the water. He actually uses the same word that was used back at the beginning when Jesus commanded them to leave. He said, tell me to come out to her, and I'm there. I'm with you. And Jesus, uh, and so Jesus says, come. That's all you need? Come on. And Peter begins to walk on the waves to Jesus. Don't you, think, don't you think his heart is pounding as he's doing that? Maybe he's, maybe he's got a big smile on his face and he's thinking, hey, look at me, <laughs> you other guys. And as he takes his eyes off Jesus, he notices the wind. And says, what am I doing? (laughs) That's the sequence, right? The sequence is clear. He sees the wind. He's taking his attention off Jesus. He's afraid. He begins to sink. And he cries out, Lord, save me. Of an echo of what they said in the first storm, only he's even more desperate probably at this point. And Jesus immediately, there's our word again, responds. Doesn't leave Peter floundering there. Doesn't say, well, Peter, you can't tread on the water. I guess you better tread in the water. <laughs> no, he immediately reaches out his hand and grabs Peter, pulls him up. But he does, even though he saves the doubting disciple, he does point out his doubt. And so Jesus uses that same name he'd given to the disciples in that earlier episode, Little Faith. Little Faith, Little Faith. Why did you doubt? The term that Jesus uses here that we translate doubt comes from the word that, mean, that just means the number two. And so it seems to convey the idea of, of being what we call double-minded. Okay? He's lost his single-minded focus on Jesus and started to look around him. To be a follower of Christ requires single-mindedness. He will not, he will not play second fiddle or be equal to anything else in your life. Now, he'd made that clear to his disciples back when he was teaching them in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember that wonderful teaching that he gave to his students there. Matthew chapter 6, he says, No one can serve two masters, for either you will hate the one and love the other, or will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Can't be done. And therefore, he says, 
I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body or what you will put on. Or about drowning when you're walking to me on the water. <laughs> Why are you anxious about anything? He said, goes on to say, Why are you anxious about anything if you have a Father in heaven? If God clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, if he, if he creates beauty and nourishment, even in the form of the vegetation on the earth, will he not much more clothe you, little faiths? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Your heavenly Father, disciples, knows that you need to get to the other side of the lake. He knows that Jesus commanded you to go. Don't be double-minded but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. How much of your doubt is because you're double-minded? Because you're saying, yes, I believe in Jesus, but I believe God provides, but Little faith, why did you doubt, Jesus says. And they get into the boat and the wind cease. Lesson over. <laughs> wind has accomplished its purpose and so Christ dismisses it. Dismisses it. And verse 33, here's, here's the climax that Matthew gives us. And then we need to close. Those in the boat worshipped him. They bowed before him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Of course, we've known that since Matthew chapter 3, right? When Jesus was baptized, and the Spirit of God came down upon Jesus, and a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So the disciples are still learning that lesson. Have you learned it? Have you seen in Jesus the Son of God? Have you seen God revealed in his fullness in Jesus Christ, the one who commands the waves the God who came to earth and walked on water is powerful to save you just like he saved Peter's physical life. We've got the gospel here, don't we? And what is the grounds upon which Jesus can save you? Is it because he looks at you and you're such a nice guy? Wonderful person? You've turned over a new leaf? 
put money in the offering plate. Of course, none of those things count for anything, do they, in terms of your salvation? It's not that you shouldn't do good things, obviously. It's not that you shouldn't give to the word of the Lord. It's, those are not the basis of your faith. Your faith is in Jesus Christ who loved you and set his affection on you and took your sins upon himself and paid the penalty for those sins, the complete penalty, so that you are no longer a child of hell. You're a child of heaven, and he clothes you in his righteousness. And your part is simply to believe. To believe. Aren't you glad, though, that there's a place for little faiths? (laughs) That God, God extends to his faith, but he is patient to grow that faith in us. Because there's going to be times when we are just like Peter, right? Take our eyes off Jesus for a couple of minutes, and suddenly we're sinking But he will not cast you off because your faith is small if your faith is in him. If your faith is in him, that's what counts. You've got your faith in the right place. I'm not saying you shouldn't try to Grow your faith. You shouldn't be diligent to study God's word and to pray and to seek strengthening in your faith. Peter will do that. It's not going to be the last time that he fails. He's going to fail his Lord utterly about a year from now when he denies that he even knows Jesus. He's going to fail his Lord up in Antioch when he, when he starts avoiding the Gentiles and eating only with the Jews. Christ is going to build his faith and grow his faith. Christ is going to intercede for him, and his faith is going to grow, and he does the same thing for you. As you place your faith in him, he will grow your faith. And if he's doing that for you, remember to look at other believers in the same way. If you sometimes need Jesus to grab you and pull you up, remember that other believers sometimes have to be grabbed and pulled up too. And maybe maybe you're to be used to be that hand that grabs them and pulls them up when their faith is shaky. When they're sort of double-minded. You are part of a company of the faithful when your faith is in Christ and he has united you with himself and with one another. Build one another up in the faith. Minister to one another. Be accepting of one another. Intercede for one another. Do those things for one another that you would have done for you. 
and the church will grow and prosper. Let's pray together. Only Father, how grateful we are for your word, for the truth that it contains, and of course, we've just barely begun to scratch the surface of, of this passage, but, but, but help us to take at least part of this to heart. Lord, we don't want to be just hearers and not doers, so enable us, Lord, by your Holy Spirit to, to receive this word to us and to be encouraged by it and challenged by it and, and to respond with obedience. And we know that there will be wonderful blessing for us in that. So help us to do that, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.